This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Put an edge on your friends with a Pussy Magnet. Welcome, welcome, my lovely lumps. Or should I say lovely labs? I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. <laughs> Ah, can never help myself. Anyway, we're going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country and I pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, if you're ready, let's flap and do this. (laughs) Oh God, is there such thing as too many vagina jokes in the one intro? (laughs) Whatever, I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull up the couch. It's the Labia Lounge. Hey, all my beautiful labial loungers. Welcome back to the lounge. All right, so today I've got an esteemed guest with me to talk about birth and how to prepare and learn to advocate for ourselves in order to have an empowering birth experience. So let me introduce Nathan Riley, MD, who is a board-certified OBGYN and fellow of ACOG, who left the medical industry complex due to his disillusionment with the inverted commas, quote, quote marks, standard of care within conventional maternity care model. Dr. Riley now focuses his time on upholding the traditional practice of midwifery. He supports midwives as a collaborative physician for midwives of all varieties in over 20 states. He's an advocate for home birth and still attends births for those in need. He boasts a C-section rate of under 5%, which is one of the best in the US, and we're going to talk about why this is really amazing and important. His mission is to uphold midwifery as the art that it is and to honor birth as a sacred process and the transition to parenthood as spiritual transformation. Dr. Riley empowers women to have babies on their own terms, using nature as our guide. He also helps fathers embrace the opportunity to connect with birth and their partners through pregnancy and birth, encouraging them to go deeper versus distancing themselves from this stigmatized but magical rite of passage. Oh my God, I'm actually so (laughs) excited to have you. I heard you on a pretty massive podcast. I think maybe it was the Lifestylist podcast, and I'm pinching myself a little bit that you agreed to be on on my humble little potty. So welcome, Nathan. Hey, it's my pleasure. No podcast is humble. It is a tremendous amount of work to do this. So to be invited onto somebody else's show that you're going to give me some time and you're going to spend time editing and all of that, I almost, I can't remember the last time I said no. Um, it, it is a real honor. So thank you for having me. <laughs> Amazing. All right. So let's just launch in. Can you please tell us a little bit about what What had you becoming so disillusioned in the first place? Like when you were just, you know, going with the flow in the mainstream medical system of birthing and then, you know, why you've kind of felt uh, strongly enough to diverge from that now? Yeah, well, um, I mean, how far do you, you know, do you have to go back to (laughs) to start to like 
put the pieces together, you know, as to where you found yourself. And, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. You, I think many of us doctors go into medicine because we're afraid we're not going to be valuable if we aren't putting our brains to, quote, helping people. But my way of helping people never really seemed to be reflected um, in my training. I mean, like you're surrounded by really good people throughout medical school and pre-med. Like you're meeting, everybody's really a good person, I think, deep down. I, I'm at least mm-hmm. optimistic about that. But then you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of shuttled into this sort of more and more narrow sort of box as to what you're expected to do if you want to help people. And if you're going to act outside of that box, then you're considered, um, you know, a, a dilettante, you know, you're, you're the bad guy, you're, you're not a good student, you're whatever. And I just, that's where I found myself. So I, I remember, um, this is before we had children, but I was in residency and, and it's one of my, my, the f- stories I like to tell the most because it's actually what I remember. I remember going and laying down in the call room, waiting on the next phone call that was going to prompt me to go and do something to a person who's in labor. And you're so tired. Like, I, I don't know what it's like to train in the UK or Australia or wherever else in the world, but in the United States, OBGYN training is some of the hardest. Like we are working our butts mm-hmm. off in order mm-hmm. to just keep our head above water. Like I remember getting, I was getting sick. I just, it was like, I'm falling apart here. And my program director is telling me my family's supposed to come second. And it's like, I, like, I just need Ugh. to get through this. Like, should I drop out? Should I do whatever? And then the phone rings again and you go and do an exam. And then the phone rings again and you go and do an, do an exam. And I'm like, at some point, I just like either smash this pager or I figure out some other way to do it. So I, I even remember having to put the pager, which is a beeping, vibrating box. We actually had pagers like drug dealers had wow. a pager. I had to put it like, <laughs> either under my my testicles when I was like laying down because if I fell asleep, I wasn't going to wake up or I put it right on my throat and it would have to oh vibrate God. me out of my stupor in a zombie mode like, ah, like would have to go to the exam room and do this thing. And at some point I was like, enough, like I'm not doing any more exams. I'm not doing it. It's not, I don't like waking up. And it was very selfish. It was like, I'm tired of waking up to do these exams. What am I doing? Like, I am not getting any sleep. I am pissed off at everybody, including my now wife. And suddenly the outcomes were getting better. I wasn't doing as many C-sections. My, all of my, my clients, I call them clients now. They weren't patients. You're not sick because you have a baby inside of you. They were all doing better. They were having mm-hmm. vaginal birth. Like I had this decreasing C-section rate so much so that they were like, you're not doing enough C-sections to get through your training. I was like, well, I better do more C-sections. So I would just start going in on other cases. They weren't my clients, but they were my junior residents. Like, let me assist. I'll, I'll, I'll show you. And it's like, well, you've done a million of these. You did a good job. Okay. And I go back and lay down. So all of that is to say that I guess at some point early on, I probably already suspected I didn't really fit into that model. But then I actually had some validation by doing less and getting better outcomes. And that's I've just doubled down on that, you know, having left the system. And now I've earned the privilege of being able to sit back and not intervene unless it's absolutely necessary. Mm. And my clients, their partners, the babies, they're all better as a result. Mm, mm, mm. So interesting because, yeah, I sort of uh, my ears pricked up and I, I picked up on just some language that you're using when you were in that mainstream system and they were kind of expecting you to go in there and you said, do something too this you know Mm. this client and that is that's really like the crux of what I find a bit of an issue with is like you know we're really and I talk to clients I'm like cool so I know that you're used to going in and when you are touched on the genitals it's usually 
quite clinical and medical or yeah. sexual. But in that clinical medical setting, someone's doing something to you and it's quite disempowering. You know, you're not particularly in control. Um, you kind of just have to like lie there and cop it. And they're really expecting you to go in there, get something done, do something, you know, get get a result. Whereas, yeah. you know, your kind of more hands-off approach when you stopped doing that was so powerful because you noticed people were getting better outcomes from you know, mm. you not intervening as much, which is yeah. amazing. Yeah, let me add something to that because there you just mm. uh, something just dawned on me, which is um, you know we're we're talking to this is a podcast called the Labia Lounge. Like there is obviously, I mean, I've got a, a uterus lit up in neon behind me right now, giving everybody <laughs> the middle finger. Um, I am a man. I'm married to my high school sweetheart. And I love having sex. I, she is a bombshell to me. Like, I don't know if she's everybody's cup of tea, but she is definitely my cup of tea. And we've known each other since we were 16. She was my first. Aww. She will hopefully be my last. I mean, unless we get into like orgies and polyamory, which, you know, who knows what the future holds. But totally. the reason I'm saying this is that like, before I went into medical school, of course, like you're a, you're like a 25 year old and you just want to fuck everything in sight. Sorry for my language, but like, that's what we do <laughs> as young people. We love having sex. There's nothing better than having an orgasm. All of that is true. And now a doctor, a male or a female has to go into this setting. And unfortunately, I think a lot of OBGYNs and other types of doctors have kind of screwed us in a way by doing, uh, you know, let's just say selfish and um, violent and disgusting things to women under anesthesia. Um, they oh. touch them in certain ways. Women don't feel safe with many doctors, especially white, you know, people in white coats all the time. And so we've divided this into like treating a woman's genitals is either sexual or it's not sexual. And if it's in the non-sexual category, now you've objectified them. And now you touch them in certain ways that actually makes them feel like a farm animal. And, and that's where the language of doing something to them comes from. Mm -hmm. But now, but I, and I've always tried, you have to balance those two, those two sort of options out. But the reality is it's actually both at the same time. And that doesn't mean that when you're going in to do an exam that you're like, Oh yeah, I get to touch the genitals. Like, no, there's no bit of that. But it also requires some sensitivity and some sensibility yeah. as to what, how vulnerable this privilege is that you get to be mm -hmm. with this person. They're opening their legs up to you not to have sex with their partner or to have, you know, to engage in some, I don't know, just some intimate anything. They're opening those legs up to you in hopes that you're going to honor and respect that that is typically what that experience is all about. So it's not just, okay, we're not going to be sexual. So let's just poke and prod as if we're like, you know, taking care of a house mm -hmm. plan. Mm -hmm. but, so there's this balance that has to be, has to be kind of play out. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that balance really playing out in many of these conversations, let alone in the mm -hmm. actual conventional maternity care model in many of the developed nations. So mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? I mean, this is like kind of tricky waters, I think. Yes, yes, absolutely. Especially I can't imagine being, 
you know, a male doctor as well, that's even more um, difficult territory. And I think, you know, male teachers find this really tricky because obviously children, young children, they really benefit from touch and from affection and hugs and they're tactile creatures. But, you know, a male teacher all of a sudden has to be super, super, super careful, which is understandable. Um, So, it's just a little aside. But for me in my work, I find myself talking about this a lot because I do something called yoni mapping therapy which involves, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't know if he's heard of it. Um, So that involves quite a therapeutic approach to genital touch and to vulva massage and internal pelvic release work. And so I'm in this very, very privileged position of being trusted to be allowed inside this kind of inner landscape of a a woman's pelvis. And they've usually never experienced this sort of, environment when it comes to genital touch it's either clinical and medical where they're kind of just trying to check out of their bodies and get it over with and it's quite unpleasant and very sterile and very wham bam thank you ma'am maybe even a bit (laughs) painful definitely cold (laughs) cold hands cold lube cold speculum um very kind of business-like and then sexual and erotic. So they're they're very different ends of the spectrum. Whereas I'm trying to find this beautiful middle ground where it's, it's, you know, therapeutic, it's nurturing and relaxing, it's educational, it's interesting. It's this opportunity for them to observe, you know, what it feels like to engage or be touched on these areas of the body and have tension released or have like, you know, gentle touch that is not goal oriented for any reason, sexual or medical. And it's purely for them and with them. And I always say, I'm not going to do anything to you. I'm not going to push or force my way in. We are co-creating this experience and I'm in service to you. So I'm going to hold a finger at the entrance and you're going to take some deep belly breaths and we're just going to wait and go at the pace of your body. And if your pelvic floor muscles sort of soften around my finger or draw me in great if they don't we don't push and it could take 10 seconds it could take 10 minutes and it's just this sort of um yeah quite a unique experience that we don't we don't often get and and um it's so Mm. important that it feels like it's within their control it's at their pace and they're empowered through every step of the way and there's you know consent that they can take back any time and I just think like in the medical system we don't have we don't have time for that there's no framework for that (laughs) and if you did try to have a really I imagine if you did try to have like a really beautiful nurturing gentle approach especially as like an attractive male doctor it might be seen as like I don't know, like not professional enough or a bit creepy or a little, like it's just a bit unusual. And so, Mm. yeah, there might be some assumptions made there. So I can't imagine how tricky that must be. But God, it's nice when someone just has a beautiful bedside manner and they're just being so reverent and so honoring and they're communicating with you the whole way. Yeah, Mm. it is, you know, and that's what I love about your language and your approach. Um, Yeah, so anyway, I'm going to. That's my rant. (laughs) Well, yeah, I, since we're just flowing here, I, um, the reverence piece, I think that's actually what's lacking here. You know, we, we see, I think a lot of us doctors in this reductive way that we view and have, have really been conditioned to objectify the process because on the one hand, if I'm going to cut into your belly and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Freya, that's different. Like I'm going to, I'm going to cut into your belly with a scalpel. No, I need to see this as a project to, 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 to versus Mm -hmm. 
in birth, you are right there. Your legs are open. You're exposed mm-hmm. in all of the ways that only your maybe partner would see you. And that, so we have a hard time not objectifying that, knowing we have a job to do. But the cervix, you know, is what a lot of people talk about. And this cervix thing, you know, I, you and I were, you're, you're aware that I've got this program around HPV and cervical health mm-hmm. and the cervical cancer screening process and all of that. What I've learned about the cervix is, first off, we've, we, we focus way too much on cervical dilation, but we can get into that later. Mm-hmm. What I would mm-hmm. really love to impress upon people is who are working in this field is that even though you, you know, you don't want to be, you're, you're not, you can't be a creep. Like, like this is not a sexual experience, but holding reverence for the fact that the cervix is an erogenous zone, that there, this is an area of sexual pleasure. Holding a reverence for that as a foundation for the rest of what's to come is actually still important. You don't need to have it as like, you're either a creepy perv or you're a car mechanic. Like there has to be some middle ground without you slipping into the space where you're touching the clitoris when it doesn't need to be touched. Like, so, you know, this, this cervix piece, like a lot of women describe, um, their birth as, you know, we've heard these terms orgasmic as, um, Mm. sometimes people will say it was kind of pleasurable, even though it was painful, it was pleasurable. There's this fine line between pain and pleasure. Mm. If we can take that as the foundation upon which we build our entire practice and all of the modalities, arranging them around the person and remaining in reverence for what this job is. If we can't do that, then we're going to get nowhere, no matter what data we throw at it, no matter how many therapists we get involved in the conversation. The person who is inflicting the pain or the trauma or slipping into that pervy space, you're breaking people, like you're hurting people. And it may not be physical pain. It may be all these other types of pain. But can that job be done while still remaining in reverence for what Mm -hmm. happened for this little miracle to appear inside the womb? And for the, to, in reverence of, of the many women who have had these healing experiences through an otherwise very, you know, otherwise maybe very traumatic event. It is, it is very mm-hmm. stressful and it can be very traumatic if that reverence yeah. isn't there. Maybe that's the missing piece is just mm-hmm. a reverence for what this whole reproductive system is capable of doing, giving you the most yeah. intense pleasure. And also being a part of the most scary experience for many women um, in their life. I mean, there's this is what we're lacking, I guess, is this type of conversation and, and maybe investigation mm. or just thoughtfulness about it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think like if if the context was a bit different, the the because yeah, so many people have had very traumatic birth experiences, and I feel like some of them would have been traumatic anyway but then some of them might right. have might have yeah been been seen in a different light and experienced differently and wouldn't have landed as so traumatic if there had have been that container and that context of like reverence and thoughtfulness and you know treating this person like a human and this this experience of birth as completely miraculous and sacred um yeah. so yeah i really yeah. love your approach to things and um and I would I feel like it's important to also talk about the history of obstetrics and, and midwifery and things because I feel like a lot of people just trust, you know, the medical model, the more modern way that we birth in hospitals. They don't really question it and they're like, well, that's 
the way to do it and that's obviously you know the the um Wow, what am I saying? I mean, I don't think people realize that actually we used to have a completely different approach to birth that was more honoring and we've we've kind of thrown that out to make it super, super clinical and convenient for doctors, basically. Did you want to give us a bit of a history of, yeah. of birthing? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I haven't I haven't really talked about this for a little while, but I had done a solo cast on the through the lens of, of European um, obstetrics, really the, the advent of, of what we would call modern medicine, I suppose. Mm. Um, throughout that process, of course, women caring for women, it was, it, it was maintained because for quite some time, the church and state, the, the ruling elites, they were going to take everything away and monopolize everything except childbirth because of this strange kind of uh, dilemma of men being involved in this space for the reasons we just described. Like this seems kind of bordering on sexual because we're talking about vulvas and vaginas and whatever. So I don't know, for whatever reason, they didn't seem to be able to navigate that. Plus, the advent of modern medicine came with a, a high price tag in feudalistic mm-hmm. societies. So women caring for women was sometimes the best women could get when they were having maybe their fourth, fifth, sixth baby. So midwives really kind of carried that torch, you know, even throughout the, the dark Middle Ages when we had the witch hunts for three or four centuries across Europe just butchering women and children. Meanwhile, the men are standing there and just watching this happen because if they were to suddenly say something, maybe they or their family members were going to be torched as well. So we had this really, really horrific period of time um, in, in the Middle Ages. So like when you think of 400 years, that's a long period of time where people are living in fear of being torched because, and when I say torched yeah. guys, I mean like tortured to death, burned on stakes. Like this is as brutal as mm. you could possibly imagine humans treating one another. Um, mm. And to, to like really, to unpack that whole history, I think is really, really hard. Um, mm. History has, is not really something that many doctors I think have invested much into. Um, many of us were bio, biology majors or chemistry majors. I was a history, I was a Hispanic language and literature student. Before I even decided to be a, a, a doctor, because my wife, my now wife, she and I met when we were in high school, as I mentioned, she's Mexican, and her family members were always speaking Spanish and making jokes about me, and I could never throw anything back. So it was like, <laughs> well, I better understand the language, and that became my whole major by the end of college. Um, mm. But the reason I bring that up is is that investing a little bit of time into understanding this, even from the standpoint of reproductive justice, you know, for our black friends and family members here in the United States, mm. like understanding and honoring that needs to be a part of our understanding of medicine. Because if we don't look back and see how we got here, we're going to continue to perpetuate this narrative that medicine and especially birth belongs in the hands of men and women wearing white coats who were able to afford the sacrifice of about 10 years at a German style medical you know, institution and then giving up you know, the rest of their adulthood um, sort of nurturing this profession that they've sacrificed so much for. If you were somebody like me, I'm almost 40. So if if I were to say, dang, midwives do this better, that would be kind of an affront to my entire identity. And that's why I think history is so confronting for people. I was just in Montenegro and the Balkans, the history of the Balkans is so interesting. It's so complicated. It sits between Europe and you know what we would call like Russia, the former Soviet bloc, and what was the Ottoman Empire. And I'm just 
so fascinated by history because if you were to just look at like even what's happening in the Gaza Strip between Israel and Palestine, the history of that region is so, so complex that to just go out tweeting or Instagramming or posting whatever, having conversation as if you know what you're talking about based on the news headlines without appreciating the the deeply rooted, um, uh, the essence of this conflict, like it, it really doesn't do anybody any good. So trying to park yourself and put your, your, um, what you think you know about the world on pause just for a second to appreciate that not only have women been caring for women far longer than people like me have been wielding scalpels, but that they also do it better now that we have data to, 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 to know that and not be confronted. The only way you can get by is through cognitive dissonance. You're just lying to mm-hmm. yourself. You're lying to yourself. Um, and you could apply that same, I guess, that same insight even to, into what we've been talking about with regards to the cervix and orgasm and pleasure and this fine line that we play as doctors to be invited into this privileged space. So <laughs> I hope I did an okay job. Uh, you know, I, I justified <laughs> your question there, but that's a, this is a big part of what I think is wrong with maternity care, especially in the United States, but also in the UK and many parts of Europe where midwi- midwives are still being characterized as lazy, old, stupid people that didn't get into medical school. Good thing they didn't go to medical school because there'd be more of us and less of them. And that does not do us any, uh, I think, any favors going forward. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting hearing how other cultures kind of approach birth. And I met a, uh, a Maori woman from New Zealand the other day. She's a, a nurse um, and a midwife. And she says all of, I don't know if it's still the case, but um, at least it was, all of the midwives are qualified to do home births because they still recognize that that actually, you know, is better for the, for the, the birthing person and you know, gets better outcomes. And, you know, here, if in Australia, and I'm assuming probably similarly in the States, like there is so much fear and judgment around home birthing and free birthing. And, you know, if I I was speaking to a friend who's um, pregnant and she was just like mortified at the thought of not getting every single ultrasound and every single kind of test and checkup and all of the things, because like, God forbid, she didn't follow that you know, medically prescribed trajectory through her pregnancy, um, something was definitely going to go wrong and happen. And like, oh my God, I can't, I couldn't possibly just trust my body. And I think it's just so fucked. Um, and, and, (laughs) and it's like so important to remind people like, um, hello, like we have been birthing forever. Like midwives are the shit and they have, they have had this covered for so long you know, until all of a sudden modern, you know, modern medicine was like, all right, like a male doctor's going to roll in or a male gynecologist, we're going to put you on your back, we're going to put your feet up in stirrups, we're going to do all of these very invasive violating interventions. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a bit of a disaster now. But we think that that is the safest way to go. And that's yeah. what I want to get into next is like, how safe actually are the 
you know, the common interventions and, and in terms of like um, outcomes, I know there's a lot of stats that would surprise people that you're probably across. Hey, babe towns. So sorry to interrupt, but I simply had to pop my head into the lounge here and mention another virtual lounge that you've got to get around. It's the Labia Lounge Facebook group that I've created for listeners of the potty to mingle in. And there you'll find extra bits and bobs like freebies or discounts for offerings from guests who've been interviewed on the podcast, inspiring and thought-provoking conversations, and support from a community of labial legends. So head over to the links in the show notes and I'll hopefully see you in there. And now, back to the episode. But first, I'd love to do the segment Get Pregnant and Die. So do you have a story about your sex ed for us? Don't have sex because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have, don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? You know, I think about this quite a bit now that I do a lot of fertility awareness training for clients. Mm -hmm. Like I just before this podcast got on a call with a couple that's going through the IVF journey. They've Mm -hmm. been trying now for like two and a half years. They've invested so much money. And then they heard me on a podcast talk about some of the um, sort of magical elements of when sperm meet egg. And and, uh, we got on a call and I reviewed what had been done for them. And I sort of presumed a lot of things. You know, you've been to so many doctors and specialists, and now they're going to like a functional medicine practitioner. And I said something like, um, so, you know, when your cervical mucus changes or whatever, and I kind of saw blank stares and I was like, well, you know, the, like the stuff you see on the toilet tissue paper. And they were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, and, that was like that was like wrong for me to presume that, but I kind of just figured, man, you've seen so many people. Somebody's obviously talked to you about this, but they were checking the LH strips. If you're listening out there, don't invest in LH strips. It doesn't matter. It's not <laughs> it's not important. It doesn't work. Um, and I can go into that later if you'd like. But they were checking basal body temperature in these LH strips, and in the, in the meantime, nothing else had been given to them as a means of trying to improve the chances of conceiving. Um, apart from somebody starting like a synthetic progesterone, which can sometimes be helpful. Oftentimes synthetic hormones don't do us any good, but um, for some people that can be the right thing. Anyways, the reason I'm bringing this up is I was like, God, how much um, easier would my job be and how much um, Mm -hmm. less emotional burden would, would women and their partners be carrying if instead of showing me horrific pictures of syphilis, like syphilitic um, (laughs) ulcers and herpes ulcers. And there was a video, it was like from the 1960s or 70s, like, and you know that because the the guy had a, you know, in the video, the dad, I don't even know if he was the dad, there was a guy I remember with this big bushy mustache in the photo. And the woman had a, (laughs) like, had not like shaved everything or shaped her pubic hair into any, you know, funny shapes. (laughs) It was just like a real woman and a real guy, and they were happened to be on camera having a baby. And the whole purpose of this was not to talk about the beauty of birth. It was like almost like, okay, now that you've been stunned by something that you never even thought was going to happen, go and have lunch. And I remember everybody was like giggling and all this other stuff. What if instead of that 25-minute video, they introduced the basics of the physiology around menstruation and ovulation. I still meet women who don't know the difference and that's not on them. This is on our society, not valuing this and Mm -hmm. instead just 
putting our efforts on shaming and blaming. So mm-hmm. um, that is still one of the most memorable things in my sex education, if you want to call it that. Um, where it wasn't even we talked about how the baby happened. It was just like, if you get an erect penis near a woman, this horrible thing is going to happen. And if it doesn't, you're going to get an <laughs> ulcer on your penis or your or your, <laughs> or your labia. Oh my God, totally. That's, that is exactly what I remember. The only things that stick in my mind about my quote unquote sex ed is like, horrifying pictures of like warty like totally like um yeah all sorts of like uh stis on genitals and then a video of birth that made me just go i am never doing that i'm never doing that (laughs) why do you ever want to get pregnant or have sex at all i didn't have sex until i was like well 18 which sounds Sounds yeah. young, but like we had been together, my my now wife and I had been together for like two years and we, I don't even think yeah. we did like any heavy petting because it was like the fear of, <laughs> yeah, totally. of health class was in us. So anyways. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Um, yeah, totally relate to that experience. It was just fear mongering and, um, and trying to, yeah, I guess like push abstinence. Um, and also I think it would just have been phenomenal to learn about, you know, like, so I've got a, I've got a, an episode on fertility awareness, um, and using that as contraception slash, you know, planning to get pregnant and conceive. Um, and so, yeah, people can go back and listen to the fertility awareness one. I'll link it in the show notes. But that's something that just would have been so handy to learn about, even just knowing that you can't get pregnant every single day of the year, you know, knowing I, that you have a small fertile window. Before residency, I still didn't know that. Like even mm-hmm. after medical school, I don't think I was fully aware that there's just this mm-hmm. short little window of time um, right? I mean, so that's people, so empowering, yeah. so empowering. Yeah. It could be empowering, but instead we use shame and blame through this Protestant and Catholic lens upon which my nation was founded. That if you have mm-hmm. sex, you're, you're, you're a sinner and you're going to have terrible, horrible things happen. Let's go, let's turn to the film. Like it, it, it's kind of blows my mind mm-hmm. that we're still doing that. <laughs> I know. I know. It's horrific. All right. So what are your thoughts on home birth versus free birth versus hospital birth? And um, yeah, maybe give us a few like stats or insights into the the safety and efficacy of these different ways to birth, because I think like too many people are still very misinformed, very um, afraid and judgmental about the thought of birthing outside of a hospital. Sure. But if they understood it more, then I think they'd be surprised, you know, at the actual facts. And I'm exhausted from trying to talk to people about this. Um, and I hate how much judgment there is. Like, you know, you are an irresponsible mother for not going to hospital yeah. or not allowing all of those interventions. Like, how dare you? That's not fair to the baby. And it's like, okay, like, get your facts fucking straight. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what do you got? Yeah. Man, well... Let's first remember that data is not everything. You know, everybody says data, data, data. Like, I don't care how much data you have. I don't care where you went and found your data. I don't care if it was biased research, if it was peer-reviewed, if it was a meta-analysis, if it was a randomized control trial. I don't really care as much as other people do about data. And the reason is that we have so much data now that even if we were to 
go through and cherry pick the, the data that supports our internal bias, which is what most people do when they say they're doing research, right? A lot of books have been written. I'm not going to call it any names, but there is cherry picking galore in order to support our internal bias, whether we're for or against hospital birth, for or against home birth, whatever. Data is not going to save us from this issue. And um, having said that, if we're being honest with ourselves and we were only invested in the data, you would see that for probably 85% of our actually pretty sick population in the United States, most women are going to be just fine without all of the accoutrements that come with a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. The reason that my C-section rate has remained so low is because I've worked very, very hard in order to see as many horrific things as I possibly can. And that means going to four years of OBGYN residency. I was at a large ref regional referral center at a, a hospital system called Kaiser, which is hailed as the, the greatest gift to public health ever. And having worked there, I will tell you it is not the greatest gift. It is the most efficient gift, but is it producing the results that we want? So before I get into that, when women have hospital births, just because they had a healthy baby and mom was alive afterwards, and, um, you know, they had an, even an uncomplicated, unmedicated, you know, natural physiologic, call it what you will, birth. Many of them still will tell you that something didn't feel right. And this gets mm -hmm. into how they were touched, how they were spoken to. Do they really feel like somebody was connecting with them? Was somebody really seeing them for who they are? This whole story that precedes them and this whole story that's coming after this. Mm -hmm. If that wasn't there, they're going to feel like something wasn't right. Right. But in the meantime, there's not a lot of narrative. There's not a lot of people in the major media networks and whatnot talking about all those beautiful births that happened outside of the hospital. Instead, we focus on the really, really bad things. And that skews our ability to ascertain risk. So you heard about somebody's baby dying at home. How many times are we talking about the dead babies in hospitals? And I'm saying dead babies because I mean dead babies. We have sometimes pushed babies to the limit through unnecessary inductions. We've put women at risk for doing unnecessary C-sections. And nobody talks about that because thank God you were there because the doctor could save you. Thank God. The reason my C-section rate has fallen down below 5% and has remained there, even for the very high-risk people that I attend to at home, in hotels, wherever, is because I've, I've earned the privilege of being as hands-off as I possibly can. And I still maintain the skills to save the day if something were to come you know come up and i can my like antenna are, are buzzing and it's like it's time to go to the hospital something's not right here yeah um so i've earned that privilege but i've also through all that experience realized that man as long as i don't get in the way usually those horrific things that everybody talks about those don't usually happen so the common scenario i just got off the phone with a lady today a client and she had um a hemorrhage after her birth. And she said, listen, I want to have another baby, but I'm terrified of having a home birth because I don't know if I would have survived. You know, my husband's convinced that the doctor saved my life. And he's right. She hemorrhaged. She had a chunk of placenta stuck up in there. And so we walked through the whole thing and she had a very long labor. It was never augmented. She never had an epidural. But the, when, when the baby came out, the doctor sort of impatiently gave a tug on the cord, pushed the placenta out, and there's a big chunk missing. So she's bleeding. And the uterus doesn't ever get nice and firm. It's boggy. So the doctor, fortunately, was there. 
and said, I'm worried that maybe we need to give you some medicines to help the uterus clamp down. Those medicines didn't work. We better go and get the ultrasound. There might be some stuff inside. And sure enough, there was maybe a chunk or two of placenta still in there. So fortunately, they're in a hospital setting. If had they needed instruments, they would have had them right down the hall. But the doctor reached up inside of the uterus, no epidural, and pulled those chunks out, gave more of those medicines to help the uterus um, become tonic, and her bleeding stopped. So if you were to look at that as a headline, the doctor saved the day. Was there a reason that some of the parts of the placenta got retained? I don't know. She's not vegan. She's not a smoker and she's not diabetic. Those are the three things I think about with a crappy placenta. But why did we have to yank on the cord? Like, what are we worried about here? There's no reason to expedite the third stage of labor. So why are you doing it? In fact, why not just leave the room and tell and ask the nurse to call you back in if there's a problem? Because the placenta is going to come out. So when I, when I attend a home birth, like I've had many home births where I don't even, well, I will make it there, but it's not like I had to really be there. Um, but I've earned the privilege of knowing when I need to be very on. I need to be really thoughtful about something and I need to be very honest and compassionate whenever I recommend that I know you wanted this home birth, but I wouldn't be telling you that we should go to the hospital if I wasn't very sure that it, that this is not what you're going to, you know, an outcome that's, that you're not going to want a dead baby, you know, whatever, hemorrhage, heart attacks, whatever. Um, and so in the case of the placenta, had we not pulled on the, on the cord, had we, uh, had we just let it, you know, sometimes I'll just let it stay in there for an hour, two hours, whatever, as long as there's not bleeding, why are we disrupting this, this really important moment afterwards where the baby gets to co-regulate and fully form its mm-hmm. nervous system? You know, the ventral vagal component of the parasympathetic nervous system, which is an important part. It's the I am. It's the, it's the comfort. It's the, when you're connecting with your partner, that's the connecting. That's the fawn piece of this flight, fight, flight, or freeze. If we don't co-regulate with the baby right afterwards, we actually lead potentially to long-term health consequences for this baby. We have an increased risk of SIDS. That's why preterm babies that don't get to be mothered and don't get to be held, that's why they have a higher risk of dying of SIDS, preterm babies. So anyways, this whole thing is like, you've intervened, you've created a problem, and then you save the day. And now this person feels that they're compelled to have a hospital birth because had they been at home, they would have died. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe we did something that actually led to more intervention that led to me having to save the day. And thank God the doctor did because she could have bled out. But did the doctor maybe do something? Was there something about that environment or something about her nutritional status, whatever it could be, that led to that outcome? My clients don't have those things happen. Maybe they will someday. I'm sure they will. But I haven't been seeing that whenever a person is dialed in from preconception all the way through postpartum. And when I'm only intervening, when absolutely necessary in order to get this family through so I can clean off my hands and say, enjoy being a parent and walk away until they need me again. That's a very different approach from what we see in the hospital. So to answer your question, if I was having a baby, I might even have a free birth. I think it's fucking cool. Um, but women caring for women, uh, whenever people are like going back to our ancestral roots, you know, you know, free birthing, I think that's nonsense. Like since when is that like ever been a real part of our, uh, of our like societal norm that women were just like nonsense. I'm going to go out in the woods and do this by myself. Like that wouldn't be safe. Like there's no, like in no stretch of my imagination, does that sound like the norm, the ancestral roots? If at the very minimum, you might have a woman standing outside of your cave 
I'm going way back here, right? In order yeah. to make sure that predators <laughs> don't come in, that other, you know, people aren't walking in on you like, hey, what's up? You having a baby? Like, that's what happens in the hospital. And we know that that doesn't do well. It doesn't, you know, disturbing this process. So that may have been the original midwife. Obstetrics means to stand opposite of. We stole that, but that's really what a midwife used to do is to stand opposite from and just to hold space and to keep you safe so that you can go inward and do this deep work. If you can earn the privilege of, of steer, steering clear of having to have your hands in every single hole at all times, and if you know, uh, if you can, if you can uh, learn the art of doing nothing, which is a very active process, knowing when to put your 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 sort of uh, your antenna turn, you know, fine tune those antenna when you know when to intervene. That's how we get a low C-section rate. That's how we go about in the future here. Um, but from a standpoint of where you have a baby, like in our born free program, the one I, I, you know, that you know so much about, I don't care where you have a baby. I just want you to make sure that you are sure about the decisions that you're educated, you're empowered and you're supported mm -hmm. through community, through compassionate touch, through handholding, whatever that may be. I want you to feel supported. And if that means an elective C-section, cause that feels best to you, fuck yeah, let's do that. And I'll make that as best as I can too. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I think it's so important to put the power and the decisions back into the, you know, the birthing people's hands. And, um, and yeah, I know data is not everything, but people love a bit of data. And, um, if anyone wants to get some stats on, you know, uh, outcomes in, in home birth versus hospital birth and things like that, and just feel reassured that actually the outcomes are, at least in Australia, just as good, if not better, um, with home births and hospital births. There's an amazing podcast series called The Great Birth Rebellion by um, a couple of midwives in Australia, and that's really phenomenal. And they've got like all of the latest kind of research and stuff. If you if you want some um, <laughs> some I'll fodder to yeah. yeah win those arguments with people that are trying to trying to um, yeah guilt or scare you out of making that decision that feels best for you. Um, well, let, let me add to that because you said, and I'm going to give you a little pushback here. When people mm -hmm. go in thinking that there's an argument to be won, like you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You can say no to absolutely everything. In fact, that's a part of being an adult because at the end of the day, that person who's arguing with you, regardless of where you want to have your baby or what you want to do, vaccines, no vaccines, whatever, they're not going to have to actually own up to the consequences of those decisions. Mm -hmm. So if something bad happens to your baby because you said yes to something because they won the argument, that's still on you. If that baby does just fine, despite what that person was arguing, even if you lost it based on the data, it's still on you. You're the one ultimately who has to take care of this child for the rest of its life. There is no argument to be won here. You are not going to convince a blue voter that they're, um, that your red candidate is so much better because of some Thing they said in the 70s about racism or abortion mm -hmm. or whatever. We're not going to, mm -hmm. we're, we're like so caught up in winning the argument when really this needs to be about what is the best for this person? How can we take care of more people and get better outcomes as a society? We are not mm -hmm. siloed off. And if you win the argument, who cares? That, that person hasn't, isn't like suddenly now convinced that they're, that because they're the loser. We just, we just, we just start stacking data on top of one another until mm -hmm. we're now like kind of, confused as to what we were even arguing in the first place. So I just wanted to add that in there. That Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I totally agree with that. I think though it's um 
it is something that does that does happen, unfortunately, though, that yeah, um, you know, totally. pregnant people are bullied, their husbands or their partners don't support their decision to have a home birth. They're putting, you know, the fear of God into these people. And then of course, as soon as they go to one or two appointments at the hospital or with a with a doctor, they're being pressured, they're being guilt tripped, yeah. they're being, you know, um groomed, basically. The system groomed. grooms the birthing That's person. Right into yeah. just following the tune of the doctors or the medical professionals rather than their own bodies or intuition. And so we're quite disempowered um, by being in the system and also like it's very tricky to ignore those opinions and voices that are coming yeah. at us, um, especially from family members or a partner. So I think oh, it's, you it's know, so hard. maybe not yeah. about trying to win an argument, um, but more just like how how will that birth experience be if, yes, you know, say I've got a partner who really doesn't support me having a home birth, they're scared shitless, so they're not able to support me properly. I'm feeling their nervousness. I've had several appointments with, you know, um, medical professionals that have tried to scare me into totally. doing it at a hospital you know so then of course I've got these you know these energies that are really distracting and making me feel more nervous and there's a lot more pressure on this home birth all of a sudden and so it's like yeah. cool I still am in my power to make that decision but like I know that there's a lot of people against that and of course that's going to affect me so it's just people should just get in their lane and stop having opinions <laughs> about a birthing person's choice. Yeah. Like just yeah. fucking leave off, you know, and like a la- if, if it's clear that that's their choice, support that and offer, you know, help and resources and encouragement and just don't, yeah, don't get in there with your little opinion or your fear because, um, you know, she's going to do this and it's only going to make it worse for her yeah. if you're not in support of that, you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, and and I, I want to ask you a question. I know it's I know you're the host, but as a yeah, this is something my wife, she's my biggest advocate and also my biggest critic. Um, we have very very deep heartfelt conversations around some of these topics, and she has posed to me um, this this tricky situation for women as well. You know, you're going to go into the hospital and have a baby, and you've already been conditioned for most of your life to listen to other people tell you what's mm-hmm. right or wrong. So I'm curious, Freya, from your standpoint, how does that conditioning as a woman play into this? Like at what point, um, what am I, let me, let me be very clear as to how I'm, what I'm trying to ask. It's, let me just pose it as like an observation. It seems to me that when a woman has been told from a very, very early age that they don't have the right to choose what happens to their body, right? Like they get raped and we Mm -hmm. blame her for wearing a short skirt. I mean, like little, little tiny things like that just stack up Mm -hmm. so much Mm -hmm. so that when you're walking home at night by yourself from the bar, you have to go into this like appeasing mode and smiling at people in hopes that they're not going to hurt you if you, you know, if they, if they approach you about something and you have to say no. So like now you're in labor and you're being expected to say no to an authority figure. I'm just curious, like from your standpoint, when you hear that, like how does that play into how you counsel your clients around some mm. of these these dilemmas that arise when we're trying to make decisions oh that feel right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Massively. That's such a such a thing. And I think, you know, most of the clients that I have for like birth debrief type sessions where they're telling me about a quite a traumatic experience, like I hear time and time and time again, like 
you know, that they didn't feel like they could say no or when they were in that really vulnerable, you know, they had all of these ideas about what they wanted. They had voiced their desires and their intentions. But then when push came to shove and they were in this vulnerable position, they've got, you know, pain, pains of like labor, things like that. They just weren't able to advocate for themselves. And because there was the fear from everyone else and also obviously from a little bit from within because like if you've never given birth before holy fuck like this is a big (laughs) thing that is now happening (laughs) in your body and all of a sudden it's all very intense and they do just flip into that um ease and appease that kind of people pleasing the 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 handing the power over and going along with the person that seems to know what's best for you and seems to be quite um you know uh authoritarian like like the 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 manner is like all right don't worry i know what to do this is what's best this is what we're doing and often they're not even given a choice it's not even posed as a question it's like okay i'm going to do this now now we need to do this um and so it's very 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 difficult to advocate for ourselves as women in certain situations anyway because like i said we've been groomed our whole lives to you know say yes to sort of smile and and go along with things to put other people's needs before ours um to be empathetic and make sure everyone around us is okay before we are like we just do this by default you know a lot of the time because that's what we've kind of that's what's been expected of us our whole lives and that's what we've been rewarded for um and then in in a birth situation that's just amplified because you know the doctors know best um you you know you don't want to make a wrong move like there's so much at stake it's like we're getting dangled over us like the the life of our baby and ourselves and if we make a wrong move or we go against what other people who seem to be in this position of authority and knowledge what they're saying and suggesting or demanding like what a horrific thing Mm. that would be if it didn't go our way and then that would be our fault and so sometimes and this is like this happens in the bedroom a lot I hear this all the time this is what I'm coaching um, women in particular on a lot is like to not just go along with things because it's easier than making a scene or creating some kind of tension or um, friction you know so many people allow things to be done to their bodies because it's just easier than retracting the the consent that they'd previously given or usually they haven't even given consent they've maybe gone home with someone or they've found themselves in a situation they've been okay with a bit of intimacy but then it's moving further and they're like oh well I mean I'm here now I I probably it'd, it'd be too difficult to kind of like say no now I may as well just like let this happen and go along with it and you know it's easier than actually standing up for myself or 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 leaving removing myself from this situation somehow so you know, we're having sex when we don't really want to have sex. We're having the kind of sex that we don't want to be having. We're, we're all like very, very commonly, you know, in situations that aren't particularly empowering or we're not enjoying or even like in, in marriages where you love the person, you trust them, you feel safe, you're having sex and really commonly it'll just like maybe stop feeling good for the woman or it'll start hurting a little bit but you're kind of like, well, I mean, I'm here now. I might as well just let him finish. Might as well finish. <laughs> it's not pleasant for me. It's kind of hurting, but like, let's just finish him off and get it done with. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
And it's like that last five minutes of sex might be really unpleasant for the woman, but she lets it happen. And that's a really common Mm. example that seems Mm. harmless, but it's just another way that we're kind of, you know, we're putting other people first and giving away our power. So I could rave about Mm. that forever, but Mm. I definitely feel like that happens in birth a lot. And then the woman feels really terrible afterwards because she's like, why the fuck did I let that happen? Why did I go along with that? What or why, why wasn't my partner advocating for me when I was out of my mind on all of these yeah. hormones and pain and fear? You know, so yeah, yeah. I think it's important yeah. as well to chat about how you encourage like fathers to get involved and like what they can do to support the process and make it more of an empowering experience. Excuse the interruption, my loves, but I'm shamelessly seeking reviews and five-star ratings for the potty because, as I'm sure you've noticed by now, it's pretty fab, and the more people who get to hear it, the more people it can help. Reviews and ratings help me curry favor with the algorithmic gods and get suggested to other listeners to check out. Plus, they make me feel really good and appreciated as I continue to pour my heart and soul into creating this baby for you. And I promise I don't maz over them or anything. I mostly just tuck them away for a rainy day when I'm filled with self-doubt and existential dread about being self-employed, which is fairly frequently. (laughs) So you see, leaving a review really does make a difference and it's an easy little act of support that you can take in just a minute or two by either going to Spotify and leaving five stars for the show or writing a written review and leaving five stars over on Apple Podcasts. Choose your poison, or if you're a real overachiever, you could do both. Whoa now. If you are writing a review, though, just be sure to only use G-rated words, because despite the fact that this is a podcast about sexuality, words like sex can be censored and your review won't actually show up. Lame. Anyway, oh, oh, what was that? Oh, you're going to go do it right now while I wait. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great idea. May as well just quickly click that five-star button before we get on with it and, you know, like forget about it and get on with your day. Um, um, oh, I'm hearing them roll in. I'm hearing those five stars. <laughs> oh my God, I make myself cringe. Anyway, uh, thank you much, Lee. You're a total gem and I'll let you get back to the episode now. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, you know, you, you brought up the, the, this sort of practice rounds of having sex with your partner, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of guys who are coming to me and coming into the born free method, these are really conscious individuals and, um, they, they want to, to take advantage of this opportunity to be a part of this really important thing, but I'm not certain that there's even a lot of consent in consensual marriages, Um, you know, like, like my wife has, has had to tell me, like, I don't like when you just grab my boobs when we're kissing, like you come up and kiss me and I like rub my hands on her. I'm just like, missed her all day. And she's like, I've been touched all day. Like, I don't want to have your hands on me. (laughs) And like, this isn't like perv time. It's like my wife, I've known her since we were 16, Mm -hmm. but she still doesn't feel like there was no consent to touch me like that. Mm And like, I'm not going down her pants and trying all kinds of weird things. I'm just like giving her a little, like a little light squeeze or a little light brush. Mm. And so we've had to have this ongoing conversation, which really comes down to consent. Like I didn't consent for you to do that. I'm covered in sticky things from the girls all day and I'm cooking (laughs) food. Like I don't want that. But furthermore, even when we are having sex, like this is actually very much, um, it really very much informs me of of um, how to care for women in birth. 
which mm-hmm. it's going to seem like a stretch, but I think we've gone far enough in this conversation for people to appreciate mm-hmm. what, what I'm about to say. When you're having sex, like we're talking about penis in vagina, like we're talking about heterosexuals straight up. I don't know what any other sex feels like. So um, <laughs> when I'm having sex with my wife, sometimes it feels like she is drawing me in. Like it doesn't even feel like I'm pushing myself. Like I'm not penetrating her. She's actually pulling me in. And there's a subtle thing there, but you have to be very like sort of a self-aware and very connected to your partner to feel that. That's what real intimacy to me means. And there's a multi-billion dollar lubricant industry out there. I get it. Sometimes lube is really, really helpful with toys and things. But if my wife isn't like wet and like ready to go, there is no consent. And like for me to go and like slap on a bunch of lube and just shove it in there, she may feel compelled to say yes. And it's still like, well, it's one little time or whatever. But if that's like the way that you guys engage in sex, and now you're going to transport yourself to a, an opportunity for you to advocate for your birthing wife, and she is now put in a position to say no, like she's even practiced with her most intimate partner, not saying no, thank you. She has never practiced that even with her most Mm. intimate partner. And now you, Mm. Joe Schmo with an MD after your name, like just because they let you in there doesn't mean you have consent. Like that's where this deep connection comes from. And I'll say that I used to get frustrated when we weren't having sex enough. We, I mean, every couple goes through periods where you're just not having as much sex, maybe once every couple weeks or whatever else. And you get frustrated and then you blame the partner for not initiating and all this stuff. It took me up until very recently for my wife to really gradually coach me on sex as the consequence of communication and connection. And that when that consent is there, I am, I, she opens me taking her. She wants me to ravish her. Like that is actually a part of intimacy but not without that consent. And that consent is built up over time, building rapport, building trust, specifically from the the lens of the masculine, letting her know that she can trust you to receive her because you're so used to giving and penetrating and putting your foot through the door and all of that, that mm-hmm. that find just, just massaging that throughout your relationship every moment of every day and letting her know she can trust you to receive her, only then is she going to open up and b- draw you in. And that's when good sex happens. I don't even think a lot of couples have great sex, but no, it's because they haven't. They have, yeah, they have no idea what intimacy really is supposed to look like. You're not entitled to have sex, mister. Sex is a consequence. That is a that is the gift of actually having been fully connected and um, and, you know, like, like in resonance with one another for a period of time. And whenever that's a consistent thing, yeah, you have more sex, but you're not entitled to have sex every day because she hasn't consented to it. Yeah. Sorry, that was a lot. That, yeah. was, a, that, was, a, that was a big bolus of, uh, of soapbox, but uh, there's a lot there. No, I love it. I mean, there's stuff that I you know talk to people about a lot and coach, coach couples on a lot. And I think like starting to practice saying no if this is a hard thing for you, which it is for a lot of people, especially women, starting to practice saying no with your most intimate people, so your partner and maybe family yeah. members or friends, and you can even let them know like, hey, I'm actually um, I'm quite challenged by saying no and I want to practice, so please just know that it's nothing personal. And, you know, we're not very good at receiving no, a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of the time, like that is – 
seen as a rejection or something, you know, a personal affront. And so because people aren't great at receiving no, they don't respond, you know, very well, they don't receive that. And then the person that's trying to say no gets that, you know, negative feedback of like, oh, that doesn't go well for me. And that's actually, it's just easier if I can say yes. It's just actually easier because if I say no, my partner's just going to, be a little fucking baby about it and it's easier for me to just cop it myself and that's that is what happens all the time is like women especially in the bedroom you know giving guidance or feedback especially men (laughs) but women do this too everyone is pretty bad at receiving feedback um they let it dent their egos and then they react quite immaturely it's not anyone's fault that's just we haven't been taught how to communicate maturely and how to navigate these things um and so yeah that's obviously reflected in in other scenarios in life and so i feel like if you're preparing to give birth whether that is at home or in the in the hospital like really practicing your no practicing your boundaries practicing giving and um and not giving consent um, so that you know what that feels like so that you're not all of a sudden trying to do that for the first time in literally the most pressurized situation possible um, because you won't stand a chance and then you'll loathe yourself. You'll be disappointed in yourself afterwards and you'll blame yourself and actually you should not be after a very traumatic birth experience that's super disempowering. You shouldn't be blaming yourself because then you're feeling even worse about something that's already shit you should be blaming the systems that are in place and the sort of people that have coerced you and groomed you and pressured you into disempowering situations that now have left you feeling wretched. So, yeah. anyway, that's my soapbox moment. <laughs> I'm over here. I mean, that's what you just said. That needs to be what everybody takes from the episode. That is so critical. Mm-hmm. The first time that you practice saying no thank you, And it's as simple as that. And that is very hard for Mm. even us to do when our friends call up to go to the movies and you're like, oh, I don't know. I got other things to do. Like, no, thanks. You know, I'm really tired today. I'm just going to pass. But let me know when you go next time. Like that little thing is so hard for us to do, let alone being a woman conditioned in the way that you just described, practicing Mm -hmm. saying no when they haven't even said no to their most intimate partner. Like practicing saying no when you're going into the hospital in labor, it's, it's, it's not. It's an exercise that's dead in its tracks. It's just really, really yeah. hard to to expect that of our, of our, of our women, yeah. women yeah. in our societies. Oh totally, totally. Yeah. Um, it's. I find it hard enough when I go in for a pap smear to like build up the courage to ask the doctor if they can give me a little mirror and let me have a look at my cervix. You know, because that's unusual, and they give me a funny look, or they're like, "Why do you want to do that?" And I don't want to take up time or space. <laughs> you know um and that's it like we just we are conditioned not to not to take up too much time or space or be inconvenient or be extra in any way anyway don't get me started i've probably got lots (laughs) what i what i would love to chat with you about is um so yeah you have this really low c-section rate which to me is phenomenal and something to be so proud of. But a lot of people might be a bit confused about like why that's something to boast about because this is an intervention that's so normalized, like people can elect to have them by choice now. Um, And it's so common that, you know, a lot of people I speak to don't see the problem with it. And, um, you know, I've even heard women saying like, I know people that have elected to have one voluntarily because they wanted to save their pelvic floors and vaginas. Um, and, you know, mm. just they like talk about it, like get the baby out the sunroof and, you know, I get to plan it and blah, 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 um, which I 
kind of cringe at because obviously each to their own, but I just feel like they don't really, they're not super informed about this and it's quite misguided because it's not as though a C-section will necessarily save your pelvic floor. Um, For sure. And so can you like elaborate on why it's actually a great thing to, if possible, avoid a C-section? Yes. And one thing I haven't really mentioned is people are probably like, bullshit, 5% C-section rate. Yeah. 5% C-section rate. And I think the number one contributor to our C-sections worldwide is this continuous fetal heart rate monitoring. It has absolutely Mm -hmm. done nothing to change our statistics around cerebral palsy. It has done everything to skyrocket our C-section rates. It is unvalidated. It does not belong in modern maternity care for almost anybody. I'm just going to throw that in there. That is the number one piece of technology that has fucked us. And... I'll get into now what you're what you're describing. So, um, so there's a lot of good reasons not to have a C-section. Um, the the we'll talk about the pelvic floor last. Let's also start with the reality of what surgery on the abdomen entails. You have a higher risk of blood damage to organs, blood clots, infection, all of those things, longer postpartum recovery. There sometimes is a disruption to uh, milk supply and latching and whatnot. So. Once you've done one C-section in the abdomen, everything gets stuck together and you have what's called adhesions. That makes the second time a lot harder, third time even harder, fourth time even harder. That is true. It is a logarithmically uh, uh, increased risk to the mother with multiple C-sections. There's also risks to future pregnancies. So now you have a, a, a weakness in the uterine wall. Of course, you could rupture your uterus. That is an extremely low risk. But what I'm more concerned about is after we've operated so many times, if that placenta grows close to the cervix, you have a chance of it growing into the wall of the uterus. And now you're looking at something on the accreta spectrum, which is the highest morbidity thing we could diagnose for the most part in pregnancy um, for all comers. Oh. That means that we're going to have to do a cesarean hysterectomy. It is a horribly bloody surgery, three or four surgeons oh. to remove your uterus because your uterus has grown into the wall of the, I'm sorry, your placenta has grown into the wall of the uterus and that is bad news. It can grow through called percreta into the bladder. I mean, it can be a Whoa. nightmare. It's uncommon, but your risk of rupturing after one C-section or any number of C-sections for that matter is still less than 1%. And the risk of that accreta stuff logarithmically increases if you have a placenta previa with the number of C-sections up to as high as I think 40% after three C-sections, if I have the numbers right, but it's way higher than less than 1%. So that's a problem. So once we're doing the first C-section, we're setting you up in many hospitals to have another and another and another, and hopefully you don't have seven C-sections because that's a challenging surgery towards the end there for, for many women. Sometimes it's like no adhesions, no nothing sticking together. And you're like, holy hell, we dodged a bullet there. But for the most part, yeah. they become more dangerous with time. The other question, of course, is we'll get to the pelvic floor, I promise. The other question, of course, is um, the microbiome to the baby, right? Coming through the vaginal canal, out through this dirty, filthy space that so many women have been told is unhygienic has prompted us to use iodine preparations in the vul- around the vulva, um, on the perineum, in the vagina before birth. Sometimes people will do that even during a C-section in order to, I guess, sterilize the, the vaginal space. I, I don't really oh understand God. it. But most uh. importantly, the baby has a relatively uncolonized GI tract. And the yeah. way that the baby is going to live the rest of their life it starts the moment that that baby comes through the vaginal canal, the skin, the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the ears, the nose, all of the intestines, the anus, the skin, everything is covered with bacteria. Thank God 
because that bacteria is going to keep you alive. It's going to help you digest and absorb food. It is so critical. Add to that the disruption to the nervous system, which I'll, I'll go into in a, in a, in a second. Um, add to that all the vaccines and the antibiotics and everything else. And we've got a really, really big problem because many of our chronic diseases, at least 14 out of the major 15 causes of death, including cancer, hypertension, diabetes, all of that is associated with poor gut health. So we're setting up kids for long-term health issues by doing this. And I mean, from the microbiome standpoint alone, the yeah. third part, And do the they, third, um, sorry, got, sorry to interrupt you, do they, um, cause I know they sort of figured that out a while ago that if you are taking them out the sunroof, they're not getting, um, their microbiome or they got like seeded with the mother's bacteria. And so they're not getting no. that start. So they do a bit of a, like a bit of a smear. Do they you do that in that, the yeah. States? I mean, it's not yeah, the same, well, but. It's not the same, but it's certainly better than nothing. I used to be, people yeah. used to call me like the crunchy granola guy in residency because I just read the literature. There's a joke that your guests will appreciate. What's the best way to hide something from an OBGYN? Publish it. So I was reading oh. and reading and reading and reading and reading and reading and reading because I'm a, I was a literature student. I love reading. I read very quickly and I'm able to retain and integrate um, stuff that I read very, very, very well. It's just something I do super well. Thank goodness. But data is not everything. However, I used to carry a briefcase of papers around with me in order to justify my lack of my unwillingness to intervene in a variety of these processes. Mm -hmm. And one of those papers was a big study. I believe it was in JAMA. That's the Journal of American Medical of the American Medical Association. It's one of like the big five journals in the world that talked about this vaginal seeding process, whereby we're going to mm -hmm. put a sponge in the vagina and smear the baby with it after the surgery. Mm -hmm. It's so simple, but people thought it was so like like profane, like so grossly. Really? <laughs> like, what do we have to lose? It's not a sterile environment anyways. Why are we even wearing all the sterile stuff at birth? Like it's not, mm -hmm. nothing about this is sterile. This is as mm -hmm. raw and carnal and primal as you could possibly be. Mm -hmm. And it's good because the baby needs germs. The baby needs all of mom's germs. The baby's going to go home yeah. to that environment. We don't need a sterile environment here, right? Surgery is different. Mm -hmm. Like I'm operating in the belly, sterilizer instruments and all that. But so yeah, that is a practice that I was I was scolded for, but I was really, really an advocate for it in residency. And I think it is becoming more popular now, even though I don't do C-sections anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Carry on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we get to the pelvic floor, I think it's a relevant part of this conversation is also the, um, in the environment of an operating room, we talked a little bit about the development of the nervous system. You get your dorsal vagal, that's low heart rate, first trimester. You get your sympathetic tone developing in the second trimester. Uh, heart rate goes up to like 180, 190, like super high. And then the ventral vagal, the second leg, the higher leg of the vagus nerve develops, or the vagus, let's say the vagus, uh, the parasympathetic system develops. Mm -hmm. Those branches of the vagus go up to the brain. That is the fawn response. That's how we connect and, and that's how we communicate. Like that's the, that's the, where we all want to be living is in ventral vagal. When a baby is born into a very scary environment, the first thing we do is we take them from the mom. We put them in bright lights with masks and gloves and dry them off and do all this silly stuff to it. We stick a needle in their foot with vitamin K. We put goop on their eyes, making it entirely impossible for them to get bearings around their new surroundings. And that is ever more a problem in the operating room, which is filled with noise. And it, there's no more, there's no more heartbeat. Like you're not feeling your mother's breathing or their aorta or all the gurgling of their intestines around that. They go from the amniotic universe to this very scary cold, um, 
uh, sort of treacherous environment. So it disrupts this yeah. co-regulation that is required for the baby to fully develop the rest of their nervous system up to six months of life. Another big reason for us to not be doing as many C-sections and mm. to have a home birth. <laughs> and then um, wow. the, la- the last one is related to the pelvic floor. So we're all worried about tearing and all this other stuff. Of course, people who have home births have a much lower chance. I have yet to place a suture in the home environment in the perineum. Yet. I have not yet had to do it because it was such a small little skid mark that as soon as you put your legs together, the tissue starts healing almost immediately. And within a couple of days, mm. you're, you're, you don't even have a tear anymore. If muscles involved, wow. sure, putting some sutures in you know, can be helpful. But this pelvic floor thing is interesting. Diabetics, vegans, and smokers have tears that are almost irreparable. They're really, really hard to bring back together. But the pelvic oh. floor is not what we see tear. The pelvic floor is the deeper muscle, the levator ana, the, yeah. the, 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 the bottom of the basket of the pelvic bowl. Mm. And that can be injured probably it's probably most likely to be injured when a woman can't feel what's happening down there naturally they're going to get into mm-hmm. different positions they're going to be able to push whenever they feel like pushing all of that stuff protects the pelvic floor because she's going to get feedback from all of those muscles in order to help um, facilitate this birth through the vagina having said all of that if you have, if you're not well nourished, you're not moving well, you've got poor mobility, you've got poor sort of feedback within your, um, you know, a lot of women, let's say, you know, for example, have no sensation in the cervix. They've dissociated from their pelvis. Being connected to that helps to provide that biofeedback so that you know how to move, you know, what to do. And you're going to have a baby in the home because you don't, you know, without a lot of tearing or even pelvic floor, um, trauma because you have that biofeedback. When you aren't nourished well and you're not doing any of those things anyways, it doesn't matter if you have a vaginal birth or a C-section, all of that pressure, all of the pelvic, that opening and everything that happens in the third trimester, that's happening regardless. So we're not protecting anything by having a C-section. That is a the, the lamest excuse for having a C-section. Um, and I'm not saying it's lame for a person to choose that. I mean, it's lame for the doctors to be advertising yeah. that. And many doctors do that for that reason. And I feel like it's kind of crazy. So from a... um from a simple aesthetics point of view, I think, yeah, you're not going to have a tear if you have a vaginal uh, a C-section. But the tear is actually, that's going to heal. That's, that's easily reparable. The deeper trauma to those muscles, way deeper to the stuff you can see on the outside, that's what leads to the incontinence, the prolapse and all of that. That's a nourishment issue and that's a biofeedback issue, I think, through and through. Mm-hmm. And a breathing and issue. I mean, I should say that. That's a part of that yeah. biofeedback, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like people kind of, it seems like they kind of miss the fact that a C-section is a major, major operation major. that's cutting through multiple layers of muscle and organ. And, like, that's a huge thing to be trying to heal from when you're also a new um parent and you know the impact of an operation in that area like that, you know, you talked about scar tissue and adhesions and things. But that can create more weakness, um, incontinence, you know, difficulties in the pelvic floor muscles than a natural birth might have, you know, um, even though we think that we're kind of getting off scot-free and we're leaving our vagina completely, you know, be um, with a C-section, <laughs> that's not actually the case. Um, yeah. That's, yeah, I don't want people to, and, and with all of this, like I just want to, you know, if people have 
given birth or had a C-section and had not a pleasant or empowering experience, you know, I really, really empathize with you and it is not your fault. Like I don't want people to be listening to this, blaming themselves or feeling shitty um, because, you know, like we've spoken about, you're basically groomed into these experiences and it's, it's, it's almost out of your hands in a lot of ways because we just don't yeah. get the education to, yeah. um, you know, be in a position to advocate for ourselves. So, yeah, I really, really empathize with people that have already had a disempowering or traumatic birth experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I do have something to add to that, what you said about the, uh, about the surgery to, to take this one step further. I didn't know we were, I was going to, I didn't realize you were going to go in that direction, but I think it's actually very relevant. Um, mm. So when we cut fascia, so uh, real quickly to review a C-section, we actually generally don't cut through muscle. So most people are like, oh, that's Ah. great. We don't cut through muscle. Sometimes we have to, to make more space, but you don't want to cut muscle because muscle bleeds like hell. Mm. So what we generally do is we cut down through the fat and then we see fascia and we cut the fascia. That's the key, but we'll get there in a second. Once Mm. we get down to the muscle, we put our fingers in one surgeon on one side, one on the other, and we go one, two, three, pull. And we pull everything to either side. Fortunately, you got a spinal or an epidural, but that is, that would be one of, Mm. that would probably be like as painful as anything anybody could ever go through, like, like being eviscerated essentially. Mm. So we open that up, we do our surgery and then we let the muscles come back together. And then we close the fascia and we close the incision. We say, you're good. The problem is every doctor in every specialty operates in a silo. We see this as a isolated part of the body. But what we understand from fascia, which is where some people would even argue through different peptides and whatnot that we store trauma, but I don't think that it's relevant for the conversation right now. What I will say is that let's say that your fascia on one side of your body is tighter than the other. What happens with scoliosis, the curvature of the spine left or right with little kids, is that you actually get a tightening of fascia on one side versus the other, and it actually can shift um, the fascial integumentary connections to all the visceral organs. So whenever kids have bad scoliosis, we don't want them to grow up with a crooked, you know, like leaning to the side, but we also don't want any um, disruption to how their visceral organs, that's your internal organs are working. Mm-hmm. So if everything is connected, which it is, otherwise you just fall apart into a, as a piece of, you know, like into a puddle, then mm-hmm then tightening up on one side or the other is going to distort how the visceral organs, these internal organs are laying within one another. It can impact, you know, how your fallopian tubes and ovaries are, are, you know, in alignment later, like all of that is true. And if everything's connected, your pelvic floor and all of that integument is also connected to that big, beautiful, shiny piece of fascia that we just slice through with a scalpel. So when we repair that, I haven't looked at this evidence, but I wonder if there is a specific finding that internal body workers like yourself have found in women who have had a C-section. Are you finding certain tightness or spasm of different muscle groups that pulls organs this way or that leading to levator ani spasm or leading to prolapse mm-hmm. or leading to you know, urethral mobility, hypermobility? I'm curious, have you, have you read anything or heard about anything like that? I haven't, um, I haven't read any actual studies. It's not to say there aren't any, but I'm not aware of any. Um, but in terms of anecdotal observations, yeah, like totally. I mean, scar tissue migrates to things nearby in the body. The adhesions will pull on things and tighten things here and there. And, um, and I have noticed like a high incidence of, uh, I guess like challenges 
challenges in that area, in that reproductive area, the genital area, the pelvic floor. Um, and so, yeah, I'm often kind of talking about like how we can work with that area, that scar tissue um, from the outside, but also like internal massage being really great for starting to loosen off some things. And it's really, yeah, it's really tricky because there's, everything's connected. There's so much going on, especially in that area. Um but yeah, totally. Like, of course, it's going to affect. <laughs> like, you can't really expect for that to not have any like repercussions in the body when yeah. you are slicing through, you know, quite a big and important area um, of the body. So, yeah, unfortunately, yes, yes. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> I don't have any research to back that up right now, but yeah. Hey, me again. If you'd like to support the potty and you've already given it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on, I want to mention that you can buy some really dope merch from the website and get yourself a labia lounge tote, tea, togs. Yep, you heard that right. I even have labia lounge bathers or a cute fanny pack if that'd blow your hair back. So uh, if fashion isn't your passion, though, you can donate to my Buy Me A Coffee donation page, which is actually called Buy Me A Soy Chai Latte because... I'll be the first to admit, I'm a bit of a Melbourne cafe tosser like that. And yes, that is my coffee order. <laughs> you can do a once-off donation or an ongoing membership and sponsor me for as little as three fat ones a month. And I also have a Sunroom profile over on the Sunroom app, as I've mentioned. And I also offer one-on-one -on -one coaching and online courses that'll help you level up your sex life and relationship with yourself and others in a really big way. So every bit helps because it ain't cheap to put out a sweet podcast uh, into the world every week out of my own pocket. So I will be undyingly grateful if you support me and my biz financially in any of these ways. And if you like, I'll even give you a mental BJ with my mind from the lounge itself. Saucy. Um, I'll pop the links in the show notes. Thank you. Later. We can actually, it would be nice as well to wrap up with like maybe some tips or strategies for using birth as a reclamation of our power and like end on a nice note of like, how can we make this more yeah. empowering? Yeah. 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 I love that. That's a great final question. You know, the personal accountability piece is I think really helpful right now. And I think people are probably, they probably think I'm going to go one way. I'm, they think I'm going to zig, but I'm going to zag. Here's what I have nice. to say about this. <laughs> personal accountability or personal responsibility is something that I've received a lot of um, hate mail for. Because I think people perceive that when we say, hey, there's a lot in your control, I think people flip that inside their 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 brains and they they take on the victim role and they say, oh, you're saying this is my fault. And no, I'm not saying it's anybody's fault that they get this issue happen or gestational diabetes or whatever. What I am saying is that imagine how much differently your birth could be if you claimed ownership of every single decision and every outcome of those decisions. Imagine how different your life would be if instead of outsourcing your power to other people who don't necessarily have your best interests in mind, and instead you reclaim that power and number one, practice saying no thank you, but number two, started clean with how you're feeding yourself on a, uh, how, how you're nourishing yourself on a physical, mental, emotional, or even spiritual level, on an intimacy level, on a communication and connection to your partner, all of these levels. What if you treated this pregnancy for nine to 10 months while you're growing this beautiful, perfect little baby? 
What if you said, I'm doing this my way. And instead of buying this thing, I'm going to invest in this thing. I'm going to go this path instead of going that path. What if you actually said, I'm going to make these decisions and I appreciate the information from this person and the recommendation from this person and hell, even the criticism from Aunt Mary or whatever. I'm going to take all of that and just put it over here and I'm going to take what I want from it and I'm going to put it into the plan that is best for me, Nathan Riley. What would your life be like if you did that for anything, let alone the maybe the most extremely important event of your life, having a baby? When we start talking about accountability and responsibility, there's one way to look at it through the lens of the victim archetype, which is how many of us show up in the world. We're afraid of somebody telling us we're wrong. We're afraid of telling somebody telling us we did it, you know, something bad, getting a slap on the wrist from the cops, whatever it is. We're all just so afraid of falling out of alignment with the rest of the, the masses. The other way to look at it is it, as a source of empowerment for you to show up as an adult, maybe for the first time in your life. And that, I don't mean that in, in, a, in a nasty way. I'm saying, listen, what if you did this? What if you just said, I'm in charge right now? I don't need to do that thing. Thank you, but no thank you. What if you just started doing that every day in the grocery store, at the gas station, driving your car? What if you just started saying, no, I'm good. I'm going to do it my way. Everything else is going to change. You're, literally everything in your life. That's how I show up. And that has taken me years to do that because of my conditioning as a child in a very Christian-oriented country. Um, with multiple bosses, multiple people telling me what I should do with my life, where I should go with my career, my parents telling me that this is right. You should be ashamed for this. You, you know, don't touch your, your willy. Like <laughs> literally from day one, when we can understand language, people are yeah. telling us what we can and can't do. So if you can decondition yourself and it is easier as a cis white male, I get that. But what if you, whoever's listening, what if you just one day just said, I'm just going to do things my way. I'm not going to ask permission. I'm just going to do it my way. I'm still going to be polite and courteous. We're not talking about walking out being an asshole. I mean, like, what if you just said, no, thanks, and you just did the thing you wanted to do mm -hmm. later today? It changes okay. your entire outlook on life and how you show up and how people treat you. And if that's the, mm -hmm. if you want to have your, your ideal dream birth experience, there's a lot that's out of your control. But whatever things are in your control, start practicing that right now. Take accountability mm. for every decision you make and don't feel bad for saying no to something mm. that doesn't feel like a hell yes from, from the inside. Yes, yes, preach, definitely. Thank you. Really good advice. And I just realized I almost forgot to do the TMI segment. Do you have a really quick TMI story before I let you go? <laughs> TMI, we Maybe, yeah, maybe this is TMI. This kind of goes back to our, our like sex talk, but um, a lot of couples, I think we've already kind of gotten into this, but a lot of couples, uh, they're trying to wonder how to spice up their sex life and whatnot. And my wife and I, we've been in love for a long time. You know, the, the butterflies or the like lust kind of starts to wear off for a while. It's typical. It's normal. If, you know, somebody once told me they're like the hottest supermodel in the world has somebody in their life who's tired of fucking them. Like it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's just the reality. Like it has nothing to do with how physically attractive you are or anything. It's just that you, mm -hmm. it, you, you fall into this level two eros as Mark Gaffney. He's this Hebrew mystic. 
as he describes. And then you have to do the hard work. Well, what does that hard work look like? The path of Tantra is to work towards a place where you are fulfilling sex through love, not fulfilling love through sex. And that's the hard work of, of, of being a parent and being a partner and staying in a monogamous relationship with a person you love so dearly. But still, you want to have sex more. You want to do these things. If you're a man listening, my TMI is that I recently decided that I'm going to, every time my wife has something she's concerned about, I'm going to start breathing with her. I'm just going to breathe. Like I'm going to see if I can breathe her in, like get my breathing on the same level as her. And it's almost like witchcraft. Like suddenly we're connecting. And I think it's because it's a, maybe I'm putting my presence, my focus on something else. But the next step to that is we've been so deeply connected now for some time that I've also been willing to realize that she wants me to initiate having sex. So I've recently just started saying, when I want to have sex, I have sex with my wife. And I grab her and I kiss her and I touch her and there's all this foreplay and then we have awesome sex over and over and over and over again. This has been our new pattern. And all that it required was for me to not play the victim and just, it kind of goes back to the personal accountability piece. It's like, I, I told her, she was like, what, are you cheating on me? Like, what's happening here? I was like, no, I just decided every time I want to have sex with you, I'm just going to start initiating that early on and then I'm going to have sex with you. And she's like, that's what I have always wanted. Like she doesn't need a new stranger at the bar or an orgy at Burning Man. She doesn't need any of that really fun, sexy stuff. She actually just wants the person she loves the most to see her, be willing to receive her, and then to take her. And the reason I say it's TMI is because I don't think there's a lot of people out there talking about this. Like it's not just a matter of of like, hey, uh, like you you in the mood tonight? Like. That's not how this works. And it took me almost 40 years to realize that. So um, sex in the Riley household has been really great. That's my TMI. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Get it. I'm stoked for you both. Yeah. And it, it's like, you know, some people might be like, oh, a bit um, triggered by by that. But so many women do want to be taken. And it it isn't that there's no consent or anything like that. It's not disrespectful at all. It's about ravishing. And it also sort of... Um, uh, aligns with how a lot of women, the majority of women, have responsive desire and arousal patterns, which means we aren't initiating as much and we do need the other person in the equation to actually initiate and like kind of convince us, like convince our right. bodies, like Very bring us into that space of arousal. Yeah. 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 Um, I think she wanted to be yeah. seen. Like, I think, she, I think many women, not every woman for sure, not many women might feel very triggered by what I said. And I, I acknowledge that. But this is my story. This is me and my wife. Totally. And we have had a lot of sex in our life and it fizzles out. And then it ha- and then you have, I had to sort of, sort of acknowledge yeah. what did she really want from me? And I was feeling bad that she wasn't initiating. I told her, I was like, you never initiate. But what she actually wanted was to feel like she wanted me to lust for her. She like wanted yeah. me to be excited to have sex. And maybe the tables totally. will turn. But right now at this sort of chapter in our lives, that's, it means a lot. Like we've had our yeah. kids, like we have our family, like we still want to yeah. be those people too. And that's okay. Totally. You're not, you're not like, um, you're not like undesirable now that you're a mom. And I think a lot of women totally. feel that way. She wanted to be desired. So there was a big yes. part of that and a lot of consent and foreplay and everything of else course, as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I think so many people will relate to that a lot. Um, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your knowledge and your personal stories. Um, sure. I'm going to put links to your work in the show notes and everything like that. I really want to um, do another little plug to this new HPV program. Is it clean and clear? Am I getting that right? Oh, clear and free. Clear and free. Clear and free. Oh, God, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sounds clean like a yeah, tissue sounds, brand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like some sort of um, product or something. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, which I'm really, yeah, really excited about because, um, yeah, HPV is something that I'm – I've battled with um, and have done an episode about healing that naturally ages ago. But yeah, would love to chat with you about that in a in a future episode. Um, sure. Is there anything you want to leave us with or send us to before we wrap up? No. Um, on Instagram, that's probably the easiest way to reach me. Yeah. Pretty much everything I do is on Instagram. That's like kind of my landing page. And I've got all the websites and everything, but everything's found there. Nathan Riley, yeah. OBGYN is my name there. Awesome. So come and find me, send me a DM. Mm-hmm. If something, if I said something you like, tell me. If I said something you don't like, please tell me. I'm still yeah. working through this as a regular guy trying to, yeah. to navigate this very complicated story of reproductive health. So I appreciate your totally. time and having me and, and, um, and uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's it, darling hearts. Thank you for stopping by the Labia Lounge. Your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it, just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double L action next time. And in the meantime, if you'd be a dear and subscribe, share this episode, or leave a review on iTunes, then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that, my dear, is a downright act of sex-positive feminist activism. And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify, and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered, or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyograph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT and I seriously hope you're following me on there because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time.